Genesis chapter number 45, we'll begin reading in verse number one. We'll read down through verse number eight. And so would you follow along with me as I read? The Bible says, Then Joseph could not refrain himself before all them that stood by him. And he cried, Cause every man to go out from me. And there stood no man with him, while Joseph made himself known unto his brethren. And he wept aloud. And the Egyptians and the house of Pharaoh heard. And Joseph said unto his brethren, I am Joseph. Doth my father yet live? And his brethren could not answer him, for they were troubled at his presence. And Joseph said unto his brethren, Come near to me, I pray you. And they came near. And he said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom ye sold into Egypt. Now therefore be not grieved nor angry with yourselves that ye sold me hither. For God did send me before you to preserve life. For these two years hath the famine been in the land, and yet there are five years in the which there shall neither be earring nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve you a posterity in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So now, it was not you that sent me hither, but God. And he hath made me a father to Pharaoh, and Lord of all his house, and a ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. This is one of the most beautiful passages in all of the Bible. And in it on two, really three separate occasions, Joseph says these words, God did it. God did it. He says it in verse number five. He says, don't be grieved or angry with yourselves that you sold me. For God did send me before you to preserve life. He says it again in verse number seven. And God sent me before you to preserve you a posterity in the earth. And he says it in verse number eight. So now it was not you that sent me hither, but God. The 45th chapter of Genesis brings us to uh, perhaps maybe the climax of this particular story. For more than 20 years, Joseph has wrestled with betrayal and heartache. Hardness, difficulty, and sorrow. For that same amount of time as brothers have coped with deceit, guilt, and shame. Thinking that they would never see his face again, his brothers did everything in their power to try to forget about him and to move on with their own lives. And yet, as we discover in the last few chapters, every journey into Egypt Something seemed to be happening on every one of those trips, leading them to this conclusion, something is up. Something is up. They, they even admitted so much. They, they admitted that they were finally reaping what they had sown so many years prior. Hold your place here in Genesis 45. Go back one chapter and look at what Judah says in verse uh, in verse, I'm sorry, chapter number 44, if you would, verse number 16. And Judah said, what shall we say unto our lords, unto our Lord? What shall we speak or how shall we clear ourselves? Notice the next phrase. God hath found out the iniquity of thy servants. This statement, now listen, this statement was made within the context of the missing cup. You may remember that. We talked about it last week. But let me, just, let me just remind you that while the statement was made in the context of a missing cup, what Judah was, was admitting to was not, we've stolen the cup. 
Judah was Judah's not saying, yeah, that, 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 that's, that's our fault here. No, no. Judah is going back two decades in time, and he is, he is not admitting to stealing a cup. He is saying this, God has finally caught up to us. God has figured all of this out. And as I was, as I was just thinking on all of these things, I came, to, I came to this question that I just kept asking in my mind. And here's the question. Why did God take 20 years to finally catch up to them? It's a good question, isn't it? Uh, he, he, says, he, says, he says, God hath found out. As if he's almost saying, it took him this long to figure this out. And I just want to go on record and say, it didn't take God 20 years to figure this thing out. <laughs> God knew all along. And so that led me to the question, okay, God, then Why? Why 20 years? You see, you see, some of you are dealing with some things, or perhaps you've been through some things, and maybe it still has not come full circle yet, and you're sitting here and you're asking the question, God, why? Why, why do you sometimes take so long? Why do you delay in dealing with matters of such significance? I don't know that I have all the answers, but I think I can give three good answers as to why God delays sometimes. I want to say, number one, that God delays... First of all, to give ample opportunity to repent. I believe sometimes God does not deal with things right in that very moment because he's waiting to see what you and I will do with the feelings of guilt and shame and conviction that often wash over us when we have sinned against him and when we have transgressed. This is what the Bible says in Psalm 51 in verse number 7. 17, actually, the psalmist David writes these words, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. And sometimes I think God is delaying. Sometimes I think God is waiting to see, to see if we'll come to him with a broken heart and a broken spirit. To see if we'll bring our guilt and our shame and our wickedness and lay it before his feet and say, God, I'm tired of dealing with this in the power of my own flesh. I can't take it any longer. Lord, I'm so sorry. I'm so broken over what I've done. I believe he delays to give ample time to repent. You know what I've learned? I've learned, I've learned in 44 years of living life down here, that it is, all, it is always better for me if I make the first move of confession than if I wait until someone has figured out what I have done. It's always better for me that way. I learned that a long time. I was a little boy. A whole lot better to come to dad and say, dad, it was me. I'm the one that, you know, that did this, or I'm the one that did that, uh, than, than to wait for him to figure it out. Because I don't know if you, if you had a parent like this, but my dad could always figure it out. I don't know how he did it. He just seemed to be able to ask the right questions. Maybe it was the look on my face. Uh, maybe I wasn't a very good liar. I'm just simply saying I learned a long time ago that confession and repentance is always best. So I believe that sometimes God delays to give us ample opportunity to repent. But let me say, secondly, I believe that he also delays because there is always, there is always some distance between the sowing and the reaping. There just is. The Bible says in Galatians 6, verses 7 and 9, Be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. Now listen, listen, there is a really, really key phrase in this next verse that you're going to see here. 
It says this, and let us not be weary in due season or in well-doing, for in due season. I got there before I was supposed to get there. I'm so anxious to get here, right? Because, because he's referencing, listen, he's referencing the idea that there is always, always, always some distance between the sowing and the reaping. So why does God delay? Because there is always some distance between sowing and reaping. I'm thinking to myself in the natural or in the physical world, the distance between the two is usually, oh, maybe usually several months. A farmer will plant his seed or sow his seed in the springtime, and he will gather the harvest in the autumn. And so, and so depending on when he plants the seed and when he harvests what has grown, you're, you're looking at maybe, maybe five months, maybe six months or so worth of time in which that seed has been planted or sown into the ground and in which it, it is reaping, it is growing uh, before he actually will harvest it and will reap what he has sown. Can I say that in the spiritual realm, the distance between the seasons of sowing and reaping, they can be much longer than just a few, a few months. Can I say that that's a comforting thought when we have sown to the Spirit? And that's what he's saying in verse number nine. He's saying, don't be weary in well-doing. Don't get frustrated. Don't, don't throw in the towel. Keep doing what you're doing. But just understand, there's a season that is coming, and, and it'll be a due season, and you will reap that which you have sown. So don't quit. Don't give up. Can I say that's comforting when we've sown to the Spirit? But it is a troubling thought when we have sown to the flesh. And we have lived period of time, and we have consistently sown to our fleshly nature, our fleshly appetite. We have sown carnally. The Bible says that those who do that, they will to the flesh reap corruption. But there's a third reason I think that he delays. He delays, number one, to give ample opportunity to repent because there's always some distance between sowing and reaping. And I suppose these last two are sort of related to one another. But I would say number three, he delays because it takes time for good to grow out of all things. It takes time for good to grow out of all things. Of course, I'm thinking of Romans 8, 28, where the Bible says, and we know that all things work together for good. To them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Now let's, let, let's apply that to Joseph. And Joseph stood there in the slave auction line of Egypt. He likely had a hard time imagining what good would possibly come from this? As Potiphar's wife came day by day and tempted him to lie with her and then eventually lied about what had happened between them, it was probably a little bit difficult for Joseph to see how any good might potentially come out of this. Those years, the Bible doesn't exactly tell us how long. We know for sure he was in prison for at least two years. Might have been much longer than that. But those, those years in which he was in an Egyptian prison must have included many nights in which Joseph wrestled with whether he had been forgotten and whether any hope for his future might be on the horizon. Might have been a little hard for him to imagine any good coming out of where he was at that point in time. But now, now Joseph was on the other side of this. And he could see so clearly that God had done it. That God had truly honored his word. 
The Bible says that we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. And Joseph never laid aside his love for God and never lost sight of the fact that he had a calling that was according to God's purpose. He lived in that day by day by day. And God had done exactly what God promises to always do. And that is to bring some good out of the difficulties of our life. But I remind you that sometimes it takes some time. Take some time for good to grow out of all things. Certainly God had led Joseph along the scenic route, as it were, to get to where God had promised Joseph he would eventually be. To deliver Joseph to the very place that he had put in Joseph's heart so many years prior. So as we come to the 45th chapter, Joseph has a chance. He has an opportunity to confront the people who were responsible for the greatest hurt and heartache in all of his life. And that led me to this thought. Suppose, suppose you had an opportunity to stand before the very person who hurt you the most. And you had, you had an opportunity, you had the, the license, the liberty, the freedom, the ability to look them in the eye and to say whatever it was that you wanted to say. See, Joseph is the ruler here. Joseph is the governor in the land. Whatever he says goes. Joseph could have looked at these boys. He could have looked at his brothers and said, you did evil to me 20 years ago, and now it's your time to pay. Could have done that. Could have thrown him in prison for the same amount of time that he was separated from his father. He could have done that. That would have, I suppose, been within his right. He, he, he could have even, he could have even had them killed. I mean, he was the governor in the land of Egypt. There was no one in the land of Egypt more powerful uh, than, in all the land than him than, than, than the Pharaoh. So he could have, if he wanted to, he could have said death penalty. What would you do? What would you do if you had an opportunity to stand before the one person or the group of people who made your life so difficult and so miserable Joseph, Joseph had that opportunity. And he took it. He looked his brothers in the eye and he said to them these words, God did it. Told them, hey, don't don't be angry with yourselves. Don't be troubled. Don't expect that I'm going to treat you the way that you treated me. No, God did it. God did a work in all of this. Now here's the question. How in the world could Joseph say this with such confidence? I mean, how could he do that? And as I, as I looked at this passage of Scripture, I found, I found three unmistakable reasons why Joseph could say God did it. Uh, three, three things that, that, that we know about the heart of God that reveal to us that this was the hand and the work of God that was at work in Joseph's life. Number one, can I say this? I believe he could say God did it because God is always involved in the work of saving lives. Joseph looked at his brothers in verse number five, and he said, now therefore be not grieved nor angry with yourselves that ye sold me hither, for God did send me before you to preserve life. Here's, here's what Joseph is saying. Joseph is saying, listen, this is, this is unmistakably the hand of God because God is always about saving life. That's what he does. That's what he's all about. In Genesis chapter number two and verse number seven, the Bible says the Lord, that the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul. 
Later in that same chapter, God, who was the giver and the sustainer of life, he revealed to the man that he had given life to and that he had created, he revealed to him these words. He said, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. So here's what God does. God gives life, and then God comes to us after we've been given life, and he says, here's how to keep your life. Here's how to stay alive, as it were. And he says, to, he says to Adam, he says, listen, there's a tree right there. It's in the midst of the garden. I've named it. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And, and he says this, listen, I've given you all the other fruit to eat of. He says, but that one tree is a tree that you're not to eat of. He says, for in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Now, now here's a couple of thoughts. I, I know, I know we, 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 get, we get a little caught up in this whole thing. And I've seen people say things like, when I get to heaven and I see Eve, when I see Eve, and I know where they're coming from. I get it. And it is a little humorous. But can I just remind you of something? We are all her. L- listen, I, I know, I know you say, but, you know, if I was, if I was in the garden, I would have, no, you wouldn't have. You know, another, another thing that we like to, we like to, how we like to excuse is, you know, well, man, this Bible is such a big book and there's so many rules and so many laws and so many do's and don'ts and, and I just can't, I just can't keep it all organized. You, you know what, you know what Genesis chapter two and three revealed to us? That even if we had just one law to keep, we would still break it. That's just who we are. That, that's just, that's just part of, 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 of humanity. All right, so, so it's not about the list of rules and, 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 the, and the, things of, the things that you have to do and the things that you don't have to do. That, that's not the hard part. The hard part is the fact that you are a sinner by nature and so am I. It doesn't matter if God said there's just one thing that you cannot do. We, we'd still break that one thing. At the end of the day, the end of the day a, a man asked Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus gave two things that he says you really need to do. You need to love God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. And then you need to love your neighbor as yourself. And we struggle to do those two things. So the truth, the truth of the matter is, is that we're all broken. And God came, God came uh, to Adam. He gave Adam life. And then he told him, here's how you can hold on to this life. Here's how you can keep it. And from the second chapter in the Bible, it is clear that God gives life, that God sustains life, that God saves life. While, while, while on the opposite side of things, sin and wickedness kills, steals, and destroys life. The sin of Joseph's brothers was meant to destroy his life and to cause him to suffer, and he, and he did for a season. But that season, that season is long gone, and now he sits on a throne. Now he wears a royal robe, and he has servants doing his bidding. Listen, only God could have brought could have brought such beauty from such ashes and if you find yourself listen if you find yourself in a difficult position today not not necessarily because you have sown to your flesh but perhaps because someone else has sown to their flesh and has put you in that difficult position uh, today take heart take heart listen just as God allowed Joseph to live to see a better day he can do the same for you as well Here's the question. Was Joseph elevated this position merely because he had dealt with such difficulty in a previous season of his life? In other words, was this just an instance of karma, of luck, or of good fortune? The sin of Joseph's brothers was intended to hurt him, but God had a plan. You see, a famine was coming that no one, no one could have possibly predicted, but God knew it was coming. This famine would claim many lives. 
and God. God allowed Joseph to be betrayed, to be sold, to be sold again, to be lied about, to be imprisoned, to be freed, to stand before the Pharaoh, to interpret his dreams, all so that the lives of millions could be saved. Joseph could not see it in the early days of this crisis, but that is exactly what God was doing. Now listen, in a similar manner, there is another famine that has swept over the human race. This famine does not just bring physical death, but it brings spiritual or eternal death. And just as God allowed Joseph to endure some things so that he could be in a position to save the lives of millions, God allowed his son, Jesus, to be betrayed, to be arrested, to be lied about and falsely accused, to be beaten, to be mocked, to be tortured, and eventually be crucified. He did all of this so that the lives of any who would believe on him could be saved. Listen, God did all of this because it involves the saving of man's life and of man's very soul. So how can we, how can we say that God did it? How could Joseph look at this and say, no, don't, listen, don't be angry with yourself. Don't be upset with yourself. You sold me, but God sent me to save many lives. Here's how he could do it, because Joseph understood a key thought and idea about who God is, and that is this, that God saves lives while the devil and wickedness and sin destroys lives and kills and makes life difficult. God did it because it involved the saving of lives. No, secondly, God did it Joseph could say God did it because it involved the fulfillment of his word. How could Joseph look at these boys and say, hey, don't be upset with yourselves. God did all of this. Because it involved, it involved the fulfillment of God's word. The Bible says in Matthew 24, in verse number 35, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. Psalm 19.7, the Bible says, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. Notice the next phrase, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. And I love Psalm 89. Look at, look at verse number 34 there. It says, my covenant will I not break nor alter the thing that is gone out of my lips. You know, on three separate occasions and really much more than this, but for the sake of the time, we'll just look at three. Three separate occasions, God says this. God says, my word is for sure. My testimony is sure. God, God says this. God says, listen, if I've made a covenant, I will not break that covenant. If I have said something, if some words have come out of these lips, they will never be altered. I will do exactly what I have promised to do. Would you look in verse number seven? The Bible says there, and God sent me before you to preserve you a posterity in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. Look what he says in verse number eight. So now it was not you that sent me hither, but God. And he hath made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and a ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. There are two specific elements in which I believe God fulfilled his word in the life of Joseph. Number one, number one, here it is. God fulfilled the promises that he had made to Abraham in the life of Joseph. He says as much in verse number seven. He says, God sent me before you to preserve you a posterity in the earth. And God had come to Abraham and God promised to make of him a great nation, to bless all nations through him, according to Genesis 12. I believe this latter promise is a reference that through the Hebrews would come the Messiah, or Savior of the world. And Joseph, listen, Joseph acknowledged that unless God had brought him to this point, it would have been likely the end of the Hebrew race and nation as we know it. The famine, the famine would have wiped all of them out. But Joseph, Joseph said, now hold on a minute. God, God made a promise to Abraham a long time ago. 
And God promised that, that his seed would live forever and that from his seed, all of the nations of the earth would be blessed. Therefore, Joseph looked at where he was and what God had done in his life. And Joseph looked at his brothers and understood, you're part of this whole thing. And if God would have not have sent me here, then God would not have been able to fulfill the promises that he made to Abraham to preserve you a posterity in the earth. God's word is sure and perfect. Listen, and he never breaks his covenant. He never alters what has gone out of his lips. But notice, secondly, I think we find in verse number eight that it fulfilled the visions God had given Joseph when he was young. He says in verse number eight, he says, but now I'm a father to Pharaoh. I'm a lord of all his house and I'm a ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. Certainly he was going back in his mind when he was just a 17-year-old boy. On two separate occasions, he'd had two very vivid dreams. In both of those dreams, he is a ruler, he is a leader, he is a man of great authority, insomuch that even his, his siblings, his brothers, and even his father and his mother bow down before him. His brothers hated him for the dreams that he had dreamed. But his father, his father was spiritually discerning enough to sit back and to think, you know, there might be something to all of this. We read of that in Genesis 37 and verse number 11. Joseph told his brothers that not only had God sent him to fulfill his promised word to Abraham, but God had also sent him in order to fulfill the dreams and visions God had given him as just a young boy. Can I remind you that the word of God is sure? In it, in it, in God's word, we find the certainty of death and that there is a certainty of life or death beyond this physical life. Man can scoff and ridicule God's word if they wish, but I want to strongly advise you to be aware that God always fulfills his word. Amen. See, some of us, maybe we're sitting back and we're saying, didn't, didn't Jesus promise to return 2,000 years ago and it still hasn't happened? I'm just here to tell you, it just, just because it hasn't happened yet doesn't mean it's not going to happen. Jesus is coming back. And some of you are sitting here and you're saying, you know, you know, the Bible talks about life after death. It talks about a place called heaven, a place called hell. But none of us have ever seen it. And, and, and who's to say whether, whether all of this is just a collection of fairy tales and made up things from the mind of man. And maybe you've met some really smart people who have told you there is no life after death. And I'm just here to tell you, listen, God's word is always true. I, don't, I know you've probably met some smart people who are probably capable of putting some pretty clever arguments together. I've met those kinds of people too. And I've just had to come to the point where I'd say, listen, I'm going to believe God rather than to believe man. Some of you, you need to come to that same conclusion. You need not get swayed or carried about with what the news has to say and what President so-and-so has to say and what the governor or the, uh, the congressman or whatever world leader has to say, whatever religious leader has to say. What does God's word have to say? How did Joseph know that God was in it? Joseph knew that God was in it because it involved the fulfillment of God's word. And God always fulfills his word. Joseph knew God was in it because it involved the saving of lives. But can I say Joseph knew God was in it and that God had done it because it involved thirdly and finally the restoration of broken relationships. Well, God, God has a heart for that. Just as God has a heart for saving lives and God has a heart for fulfilling his word, Oh, listen, you mark it down. God has a heart for bringing people who are estranged, bringing people who have hurt one another. God has a heart for restoring them and reuniting them back together. And what is maybe one of the most dramatic and beautiful scenes in all the Bible, 
Joseph gathers his brothers near to him. I want you to notice a couple of things. I just want to point these things out. Do you notice that when Joseph reveals himself in verse number three, he says, I am Joseph. Doth my father yet live? You know what we find there? We, we find that when, when there's a consistent pattern of lying, it's hard to take someone seriously. You ever stop to notice that? They had told him on several occasions, you know, our father is back in Canaan. He has a younger son. I mean, but, but, because, but because Joseph was used to these guys lying to him, he had to ask them again for sure. Once, once he revealed himself, does my dad still live? Is he really alive? You know, some, sometimes it, it may seem easier to be deceitful. Maybe we can get ourselves out of a jam or out of a mess if we just kind of stretch the truth a little bit. But I want to encourage you. I want to remind you that deceitfulness does great damage. Bearing false witness, lying, not telling the absolute truth, it does great damage in breaking trust. I thought that was interesting. Notice another thing that 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 I gathered from this. He says in verse number four, Joseph said to his brethren, come near to me. I pray you. I sort of gather that as he told them, I am Joseph, they probably started stepping away, don't you think? <laughs> I mean, they, you know, they were just assuming he was the Egyptian governor. I mean, how could he have known what their brother's name was if he wasn't really him? Perhaps he began to speak to them in the Hebrew tongue. I, I don't know how all of this transpired. The Bible doesn't give us all of those details. But I have to think that as he says, I am Joseph, that they began to kind of look for the exit doors. How do we get out of here? How do we make our escape? Because the last time we had the power and authority, we put him in a pit, and now he's in charge. And we have a feeling how this is going to go. But you know what he did? He says, come near to me. Come close to me. Don't, listen, do not tell me, do not tell me that your relationship with so-and-so has been restored if you don't want to be around them. If you can't stand the sight of them. You know, there's an, there's an illustration, there's an example in Scripture of David. David brought his son Absalom back. And he brought him after he had killed his son Amnon. It's a crazy story. And by the way, it all comes on the heels of David's sin with Bathsheba. But Absalom had plotted for two full years and he had killed, he had killed David's son Amnon. And as a result, Amnon excuse me, Absalom stayed far, far away. Finally, someone convinced David, bring him back. And he did. He brought him back and he dwelt in a house not far from where David lived, but they never saw each other. Never spent any time together. David wouldn't invite him over. They wouldn't share a meal together. If there were holidays and feasts and different things to be observed, they never never spent that time together. And finally, Absalom had enough. Basically, Absalom said, listen, do you want to restore me or not? Let's quit playing this game. Are we, are we going to be father-son? Are we going to have a relationship? Or are we not going to have a relationship? And I'm just simply saying that Joseph here, Joseph writes the, writes the template for how to restore relationships. He looks at the people who hurt him the most, and he says, come, come on over here. Get, get, get close to me. Let me put my hands on you. Let me hug on you. Let me, let me weep with you. Let me, let me kiss your neck. Let's talk to each other. Let's look each other in the eye. Let's sit down and enjoy a meal together because that's what restoration is. And it's what it does. Don't, don't tell me. Don't tell me. Oh, we're good. If we can't sit down and share a meal together. 
Don't tell me we're good if every time they call, I ignore their phone calls. Don't tell me we're good if every time I see them coming, I turn around, I run a different direction. That's not what what restoration is. That's not what restoration does. But true biblical restoration says, come near to me. I know you're backing up. I know you're worried what I'm going to do to you. I want you to know something. I have nothing but love in my heart for you. I'm here to make all of this better. The unfolding drama of redemption, listen, it features the restoration of a holy God with sinful men through the freely shed blood of Jesus. In other words, in other words, God valued a restored relationship with you so much that he sent his son, his only son, to ensure it. That's how we know God did it. Because God values, loves, delights in the restoration of broken relationships. Notice three things that Joseph did. Number one, Joseph provided a place for them. In verses nine and 10, haste ye and go up to my father and say unto him, thus saith thy son Joseph, God hath made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down unto me, tarry not, and thou shalt dwell in the land of Goshen. And thou shalt be, there it is again, thou shalt be near unto me. Thou and thy children and thy children's children and thy flocks and thy herds and all that thou hast. Joseph provided a place for them, but notice, secondly, Joseph promised to meet their needs. In verse number 11, the Bible says, And there will I nourish thee, for yet there are five years of famine, lest thou and thy household and all that thou hast come to poverty. Five years still left in this famine. And Joseph promised them, he says, Listen, you don't have to worry about a thing. The rest of the world's probably going to stress, they're probably going to worry about some things, but you don't have to worry about anything. You will be my chief priority from here on out. By the way, the Bible says in 1 Timothy 5, 8, but if any provide not for his own, especially for those of his own house, he had denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. Joseph's brothers admitting to having, they admitted to having heard his cries and to having seen the look of despair in his eyes and they, had, and they admitted to having done nothing to help him. Can I say that most relationships remain in a state of separation because the cycle of hurt is replayed over and over and over again. In other words, some of you are sitting here and say, I've got some broken relationships, and here's the reason. Because somebody started this cycle, and no one has refused to break the cycle. In other words, somebody somebody did the first hurt, and then somebody else did the second hurt, and then the next person hurt them back, and then they hurt them back, and then they hurt them back, and it just keeps going and going until somebody says, enough of this madness. This is crazy. You're my brother. You're my wife. You're my son, my daughter, you're my father, my mother. Why? Why are we hurting one another? And Joseph, Joseph looked at what they had done 20 years prior and how they had betrayed him and how they had sold him and how they, if they, if they had their way, they would have killed him. And Joseph said, listen, that's fine, but that's not the way that I'm going to respond. And I'm just saying, listen, I'm just saying there could be some healing that could happen in hearts and lives and homes and families, maybe even in this very church, if we just decided and we just determined, I'm not going to hurt them back. Instead, I'm going to look out for them, and I'm going to do kindly to them, and, and, and I'm going I'm to model what Jesus Christ taught us. Jesus, Jesus did not respond when he was being tortured. Did he, did he respond in kind? No, he took it. When he suffered wrong, he didn't make, make sure that the person who was doing that to him suffered wrong in turn. No, Jesus just suffered. Refused to repay what was being done to him. The only way to restore a relationship is for someone to break the cycle. 
and start doing right. If it has any hope at all, because someone's going to do what Joseph did here. And someone's going to say, listen, I know what you said about me, but I'm not going to say the same thing about you. I know what you did to me, but I'm not going to do the same thing to you. Notice thirdly and finally, Joseph practiced genuine forgiveness. The Bible says in verse 14, and he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept upon his neck. And we read that and we think, well, that's normal. I mean, this is his true, this is his real blood brother. The brother he hadn't seen. And by the way, as far as we know, Benjamin was not involved in any of the wickedness that was done to Joseph. So we read verse 14 and we think, well, that's normal. I could do that. You know, if I haven't seen my if I haven't seen my brother for 20 years. Now we might, we might not kiss each other, but we'd probably hug on each other a little bit. We might fist bump, slap each other on the back, that sort of thing. I don't know how you, how you do things. Every family is different, but some of you, some of you, get, you get the gist of what I'm saying here. But don't, don't miss what fit, verse 15 says. Verse 15 says, moreover, moreover. If the, in other words, if that would not have been enough, <laughs> he kissed all his brethren. Hey, Judah, come on over here. Hey, Simeon. Hey, Reuben. Hey, Levi. Hey, Dan. Gad. Asher. Come on over here. Let me, let me, let me kiss you. Last, last time we saw one another and you knew who I was and I knew who you were, you were selling me. You were betraying me. You were talking about murdering me. But let me, let me kiss you. Let me hug on you. Look, look what the Bible says. It says, and he, he kissed all his brethren and wept upon them. And after that, his brethren talked with him. How could Joseph have forgiven them? How could he have embraced them? How could they have wept together and talked together? Listen, here, here's the answer. Only by God's grace. In other, words, in other words, listen, the point of the whole thing is this. God did it. God did all of it. God did it because it involves the saving of lives. God did it because it involves the fulfillment, the promises made in his word. God did it because it involves the restoration of broken relationships. Our